gunners returning home like a hungry runaway. He walks through town all alone. He must be from the fort, he hears high school girls say. His countryside's burning with wolfmen fairies, dressed in drag for homicide. They hit and run, plead sanctuary, neath the holy stone they hide. They're breaking beams and crosses with a spastic's real imperfection. Nuns run bald through Vatican halls, pregnant, pleading immaculate conception. And everybody's wrecked on Main Street from drinking unholy blood. Hi, welcome to the podcast, The White Bikini. My name is Marie White, and joining me tonight is my co-host, Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nicholas? I'm doing well, Marie. It's good to be back with you. The heat finally broke on the East Coast a little. It feels a little bit better, that's for sure. The weekend is supposed to be much better. Oh, I just can't wait. It's It's been oppressive. I'm ready for fall. I'm saying it now. Don't hate me. Nah, fall's my favorite season, so bring on the cooler weather. Today, we're going to discuss the evolution of Jon Stewart. Full disclosure, I've never had any interest in Jon Stewart, was never a fan of Jon Stewart, but in the last almost 10 years since he has left The Daily Show, I am a big fan because I've sensed a higher level of maturity instead of snarkiness, and I'm here for it. No, that's an interesting take. You know, my um, my relationship with Jon Stewart, of course, goes primarily back to The Daily Show on Comedy Central. But even before that, I, I have a vague recollection of him being on MTV and just kind of being one of those silly, goofy guys. So it is interesting that we're going to talk about the maturity and the transformation that's taken place in his life, where he's an advocate for first responders and military families. And perhaps we can even discuss how he got there. It seems like it. we are going to discuss how, it got there, how he got there. And it, it is an evolution, but it's almost like I think from what I looked at, it was like almost a switch went off. He has a very interesting life. I learned a lot more about him and I definitely have a deeper respect for him. John Stewart was born on November 28th, 1962. So he'll be 60 this year? Yeah. His full name, which I think is important to his story, is John Stewart Leibowitz. He was born to a New York teacher and his father, Donald Leibowitz, was an energy coordinator for the U New Jersey Department of Treasury. John Stewart's mother name was Marion Stewart. His parents divorced when he was 11 years old. And one thing I never knew is John Stewart has spent a lifetime estranged from his father. That's a long time to be estranged from a father. Yes, especially there's not some sort of like medical situation, you know, I can understand or criminal situation. I can understand if a parent's locked up in jail or some other severe medical problem that incapacitates them. But to be to be estranged from a parent uh, who is not under those circumstances, it must be pretty severe. I, I they made me like him more. I don't know the full story. The only thing I could understand he has a strange relationship with his father, which in 2015 he described as still complicated. He dropped his surname and began using his middle name. He really wanted to use his mother's maiden name, 
but he thought it would have been too much of a big F you to his father. John graduated from the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia in 1984. And he started to do, like many people of that era, not everyone got right into show business, did odd jobs. He did pursue a career in comedy. I have no memory of him being on MTV, but in the late 1980s, he started a stand-up comedy. And then by the early 1990s, he was appearing regularly on television, including MTV. But my era of MTV is old school. Video killed the radio started was only videos. Yeah. Your era is more TV show sh TV more, shows. Well, it was more personality driven rather than music driven. You know, whereas there was a time when MTV was about the music, was about the hosts taking a backseat to the artists and the videos. Certainly by the time I became a fan of MTV, it was about the personality. So Carson Daly um, was a big figure on MTV and, and certainly John Stewart, I think, cut his teeth on TV uh, while he was on MTV. That, that's certainly my recollection of him. His career did not take off until March 6, 1992, when he appeared, like many comics, on Late Night with David Letterman. He was considered a finalist, which I found very interesting to take over the show when Letterman left. But as we know, it was given to Conan O'Brien. And he did all of those random MTV shows. MTV Break, Blind Date, Daytona Beach. Uh, as I said, I, I didn't, at that point, I'd split from MTV and no longer watched it. And then he began hosting The Daily Show on Comedy Central. And his first appearance on The Daily Show, this sounds like 15 million years ago, was January 11th, 1999. And guess who his first guest was? I have no recollection of his first guest. Who was it? Michael J. Fox. Wow, that's a great first guest. Because I think this era is Michael J. Fox really not coming out about his Parkinson's diagnosis. And Michael J. Fox, including myself and John Stewart, are often that same generation. No, the tweeners. We're a tweener. We're not baby boomers. It's a great contemporary guest to you know launch your career on The Daily Show. Uh, Michael J. Fox was a relevant figure in 1999 who had a lot to say, and he was still impacting comedy and movies. From 1999, really, to September 11th, which is only a few years later, John Stewart was at the peak of his comedy, the show, but it seems that the September 11th attacks stopped him in his tracks. I think for my generation, and I don't want to speak that it's not yours, but that was the first feeling that something terrible is happening to the country that we grew up in. I think for just about even the millennials, those who were sort of aware of what was happening, uh, September 11th was a major inflection point for so many Americans. And I hope we get to discuss this a little bit further, but John Stewart always just struck me, even with the comedy and the silliness, he always struck me as a, as a highly intelligent, highly sensitive individual who had a greater sense of his role in society, especially once the success of The Daily Show was cemented, that he had an opportunity to speak to people and speak truth to power. So I can understand being in New York uh, where The Daily Show is recorded and witnessing the devastation, the human devastation, the capital devastation. I'm sure it must have just been a very powerful experience for John. I mean, at the time, I really wasn't thinking about it, but I shouldn't say that. I was processing it differently than people that were living in New York. And I can't imagine this smell, this smoke, 
the fear that they must have been living with. And as I mature, I definitely have a greater appreciation for what they probably were experiencing. And this was a turning point for John Stewart. I agree. I think it's the difference between a vicarious experience versus a visceral experience. And we can't be faulted for not being in New York. I think we all cared about the people who died and we care about the people who suffered. We care about the loss and, and we care about we cared about the communal grieving that the country felt. But I, I think both things can be true at the same time. There was that on one hand and on the other hand there were those people that were directly impacted by it, either through the loss of a loved one or the trauma of having this happen in their backyard. I can't imagine. And the next step for John Stewart, and I've learned a lot about the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. Full disclosure, do you know anything about it? So I know it's one of the first times I, he was a major public advocate for the first responders on September 11th, Ground Zero. So this was an effort to get Congress to create a, a medical fund to take care of those people that were essentially running into the collapsing buildings on September 11th. And as a consequence, many of those people developed severe health problems from breathing in uh, toxic fumes and exposure to other environmental hazards as a consequence of being in proximity to Ground Zero on September 11th and, and certainly the days and weeks and months and years subsequent to that because, you know, we see a nice shiny pretty building down there right now, but it took a long time to put out the fire to clear the debris. And there are thousands of people who worked in close proximity to the attack site and were exposed to God knows what. And those uh, those environmental hazards are still wreaking havoc on their health and well-being. Congress first created the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund in 2001 to provide money, as you just stated, to families of people who died or were injured when the World Trade Center collapsed. The fund was intended in part to limit lawsuits against airlines and other entities, which I thought was interesting. Where John Stewart comes into this next level of what I'm gonna call self-awareness, maturity, the fund stopped operating in 2004 as planned, which I never knew. But in 2010, the lawmakers pushed to reauthorize it this time to provide medical care and financial aid to emergency personnel, volunteers, and survivors who inhaled, as you just stated, toxic dust, smoke, and fumes at the site of the attack. The fund began processing claims again in 2011 and recently was renewed back in 2015, which is when The Daily Show ended. Since 2011, Congress has appropriated about $7 billion to the fund. And why I think it's important to note 2015 is because I do think once Jon Stewart was not involved with the everyday taping of a TV show, it allowed his free time to go on to what I believe is much more important issues. Yeah, I get the sense that in many ways, while The Daily Show was an important voice for Jon Stewart and his career, I think there was a part of him that I think, especially later on when there was no more fame to be had, you know, he wasn't going to be any more famous. I think he he seemed like the kind of person that like he made all the money that he'd ever really need in his life. And and I think for some people, when you get to that point, you start to ask, then what? 
And I think certainly for him, then the, the then what, you know, the what comes next was public advocacy because he recognized that he had a huge voice. The Daily Show, if you're under the age of 50, I want to say, or thereabout, The Daily Show was a really important part of your um, sort of like how you consume the news and how you how you dealt with politics. Jon Stewart made it very accessible and, you know, and very um relatable so he was a trusted voice and i think after the daily show ended it, it only seemed like the next the next natural step for someone with that kind of awareness and that kind of following um to use his voice to do good they do state that it's unclear when he really began to lobby on behalf of september 11th victims but in 2010 he devoted an episode of the daily show to the then the then stalled bill and sought to reopen the victim compensation fund. So I think that was the first piece of him getting out there, fighting for people's medical benefits and rights, first responders. And it did a lot of good because a lot of those people were taken care of. Unfortunately, sadly, as we know, September 11th is 22 years ago now, but it seemed like almost 10 years after that, that more people started getting sick. It's almost like everything caught up with them. Yeah, and I think this is the way it happens. It happens, um, you're young, you're healthy, and you know, 10 years later, several decades later, the, the hazards that you're exposed to finally break down your body and you just can't fight back. Your immune system breaks down. You start to develop cancerous growths. You start to develop um, emphysema and other respiratory problems. And, uh, you know, just uh, God knows what those people inhale down there. And like you said, the, the World Trade Center site was smoldering and burning and, and, and um, putting out fumes for a very long time. It didn't just end after the buildings came down. You know, there was search and recovery, there was search and rescue, excuse me. And then there was a, a massive search and re recovery effort that lasted a long time. So I I, can, I don't know I don't know if you have this the number in your in your statistics in your show notes the number of people that worked at Ground Zero, but it has to be in the many multiple thousands. And a lot of them got very very sick. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I remember John introducing some of these people, and they weren't old people. Some of these people were in their fifties at the time uh, when I first saw him uh, advocating on their behalf and they had illnesses. And in some cases, these were, you know, the term that comes to mind is uh, idiopathic. When you go to the hospital and the doctors don't know what's wrong with you, but there's something severely wrong with you. In some instances, it's clear, you know, these people develop cancers. In some cases, they develop um, severe respiratory ailments. But in other instances, these people were exposed to chemicals that are doing things to their bodies that medical science doesn't have an answer for. Uh, it was it was a really sad, sad instance. And, and, and to be fair, it's ongoing because those people are still suffering. I just looked up briefly that increasing numbers of ground zero workers are getting illnesses such as cancer. Yeah. This I'm sure this is updated much more, but between September 11th, 2001 and through 2008, there was 263 new cases of cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just not to belabor the point, but when a giant skyscraper collapses like that, what happens is the concrete, the building material, everything inside the building under the weight of the collapse, it becomes pulverized and it becomes an aerosol. And so, you know, 
that's why when the buildings came down, you didn't necessarily see, you know, a giant mound of concrete that would be equivalent to the amount of space that the buildings took up. That's because the building pulverized itself. It turned itself into dust. And that dust is what's killing and, and, and maiming those first responders and the people that worked at the Ground Zero site. It's terrible. Oh, it's absolutely horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And, and what I don't know if uh, you have uh, your show notes necessarily include this or you want to go there, but the, what's, what's even, um, what's almost as horrible is the fact that you had people in Congress that wanted to deny it. Uh, Rand Paul comes to mind. I, I don't understand the mentality that the people that are the first to send others into harm's way are the last people to want to take care of those people when they come back maimed, broken, injured, sick and dying. These are the people that are the first to hug the flag, you know, and, and, and salute the soldiers or the first responders in this case. But yet they are the last, absolutely the last to do whatever it takes to protect these people. You know, I've said it before and on other on, on other podcasts that we've had is as far as I'm concerned, if you take up a gun and put on a uniform and you fight on behalf of the United States, you know, you you're in, especially if you're in combat, as far as I'm concerned, you should eat steak and drive Cadillacs for the rest of your life. Cadillacs, that's old school, Nick. Well, you know, you know where I'm going. But I know I'm teasing. I, I think there is I think there's a responsibility that as a people and our representatives in Congress they have a moral duty to protect the people who are brave enough to sacrifice everything for for our on our behalf. I'm certainly not one of the brave. So I I it, it really just and I, I and the reason I am sort of going off on this diatribe and I'm preaching like this is because I understand John Stewart's uh vision and his frustration because there's a sense of injustice and I understand the right the uh, the righteous indignation the righteous anger he feels towards uh those people in Congress that were standing in the way of providing medical care for these sick and dying people reach brother yeah for sure for sure did the next and this only happened and really made me think about devoting the podcast to John Stewart is when he had an absolute meltdown when the bicameral group of Democrats, well, he did call out the Senate Republicans for failing to pass the promise to address comprehensive toxics pact, Act of 2022. Yeah. He lost his SHIT. Yeah, no, he lost his mind. I think we all did. I mean, listen, what 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 they're going to say, the, the, the Republicans are going to say the Democrats are asking for more than what's reasonable or the Democrats are trying to put things into the bill that are unrelated to the care of first responders. And the Democrats are going to say that the Republicans are standing in the way of caring for sick and dying people. I think there's a it's an instance where there's probably a pox on both their houses and they're both guilty of uh, shenanigans. But the major point is, let's take the Republican point and say, OK, maybe the Democrats are putting things in there that are not pertinent to the cause. Well, when the Republicans have power, they do the same thing, too. So is, is the point is to deny those people with their needs? Because most of these things are just like pet projects. That's the way Congress works. That's the way our system works. I think there is a loss of vision and I think there's a need there, in Congress. The people in Congress hate each other so much that I think they forget why they're there. I think they forget why, you know, that they're there to serve the needs of the American people. And I do agree that anyone that does four years in the armed services 
and especially if you see live combat, you should have free medical care, including your entire family, partner and children. I don't understand how, I, I, I we've had this discussion offline. I don't understand why there are fundraisers and commercials for wounded veterans. I don't understand that. Why is it that there are private organizations, why do private organizations need to exist to provide care for wounded veterans. I don't, I cannot get a, 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 a reasonable explanation as to why those exist. Unless those organizations are, are, you know, essentially, you know, skimming, you know, 90 cents on the dollar. And it, it, those organizations are a scam. But as far as I'm concerned, you see the faces of some of these poor men and women. You know, you can tell they're still very young people in their 20s and 30s that have been significantly and irreversibly injured from their experience in combat. And the idea that their mom, their dads, their husbands, their wives need to go out there and hold fundraisers for their medical care. What kind of nonsense is this? I don't know what's happened to this country on so many levels, but well, you, especially where our veterans lie. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly a pro-military guy, but I'm also not a pacifist. I understand that sometimes the only way to deal with a bad guy is to punch him in the nose or put a bullet in his head to be a little bit more graphic. Like World War II ended not because we came to an agreement with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis and Imperial Japan. We destroyed their ability to fight and their will to fight. And I understand that's just the way the world works. We're still savage monkeys as human beings, you know, despite the highest heights of our achievements, our art and our science, there is still a part of our nature that is nothing further removed than our years on the Serengeti as, as savage monkeys killing one another. It's part of our nature. So pacifism is not the way, but I think we have developed an awareness, a consciousness that there are people out there that are willing to fight on, on our behalf. So there is no more draft. And those people, as far as I'm concerned, they should be eating steak and driving Cadillacs. And people like John Stewart should not need to be out there embarrassing. Let's, because that's what John Stewart has done in the instance in the 9/11 fund. John Stewart's greatest talent so far is yes, his advocacy, but his ability to call Congress out and embarrass them in front of the American people. It shouldn't take that though. It shouldn't. That's my point. I, no, I, no, no, I know. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. It shouldn't take it, at all. Especially someone like John Stewart. John no. Stewart should be living his best life. Not that he isn't, but I give him so much credit because he's out there just like Sean Penn. He's in the face of looking at these things and really trying to make a difference. You're right. John Stewart is not an old man. John Stewart's about to turn 60. John Stewart could easily be resting on his laurels, um, living a life of luxury. He certainly has the money and telling jokes because that's the John Stewart that many of us like. The guy that would just walk in the room and knows how to connect with people and make everyone laugh and feel a part of the community. But he's out there standing in the summer heat, melting and losing his voice and looking, you know, I, I heard Tucker Carlson making fun of him. Like John Stewart does look like a crazy homeless guy, but you know what though? That's one crazy homeless guy that I want on my side. He's out there doing the dirty work that Congress is not doing. When I was searching images of Jon Stewart, I just love him. He, whenever he's in New York, he has khakis in it, like literally like a white beater on. He doesn't care, and I love that. I think he knows what's important in life, and I think we see that in his works. In his speech, 
riddled with very strong language. You and I watched it. Stewart criticized Republican senators for voting against a bill that would increase spending by more than $3 billion over the next decade and dramatically boost health care services and disability benefits for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits yes, in you. Iraq and Afghanistan. I forgot, that's what I was, my mind was reaching for, the toxic burn pit um, storyline. Um, but yes, yes, it's another instance of people who did their job. You know, in the case of the first responders, they were there and they ran into the toxic fumes. They ran into the fire. They ran into just the unbelievable stench of Ground Zero. And here's another instance of, in, in some cases, these people were not necessarily in combat. They were just basically disposing military toxic chemicals in these massive burn pits. These open burn pits where they would essentially, you know, use a, a, a bulldozer, dig a hole, throw God knows what in there, and then set it alight with jet fuel in the middle of the desert in 120 degree heat. And thousands of people were exposed to the toxic fumes. There's a reason why you just, you know, any citizen and any random person out there can't simply just go burn whatever they want in their backyard because modern society is built on toxic substances. The plastics and all the other chemicals that we use to maintain modern civilization are incredibly dangerous when you burn them and inhale them. And the fact that Congress couldn't do the right thing, they were more interested in playing, I don't know what they're doing. The bill would, sorry. Go ahead, no, go ahead, please. The bill would open up the Department of Veterans Affairs, this is important, healthcare to millions of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans exposed to toxic, toxic substances during their service, even if they don't have a service-connected disability. The bill also would provide new or increased disability benefits to thousands of veterans who have become ill with cancer or respiratory conditions such as bronchitis or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. I think it was Rand Paul once again, the most one of the most despicable politicians in our system. I think he made the, the comment that these veterans were going to fake their illnesses in order to gain these benefits. And I don't personally think it should just be centered around what happened in a, if get, all veterans should have healthcare benefits. I agree. I, I, I just think we should do a better job of taking care of these people. I don't understand that these people in, on one hand are the first people to want to declare war. You know, whether it was Iraq, Afghanistan, these are the first people to say that we should drop the bombs. We should let the rockets fly and drop the bombs. However, when it comes time to take care of the people that have suffered, now they're circumspect. And and, and there's, there's navel gazing and hand wringing and, oh, I'm not sure, you know, maybe we should slow this down and think this through. Find the whole, the whole system and these people absolutely repugnant. The VA would presume that veterans develop their illness as a result of exposure to toxic substances during their service. Supporters say the current process for proving to the VA that their illness was caused by their exposure is too burdensome for a group of people already struggling with a myriad of physical and psychological conditions. Oh my God, can you imagine your, your cancer? You know, let's say you have, uh, you know, throat cancer. 
you know, uh, and you can't speak and advocate for yourself. And yet you need to go and jump through hoops. You're in a wheelchair. You can't speak and you need to go and jump through hoops to prove to the VA that, uh, you know, while you're serving in Iraq or coincidentally, while you're serving in Iraq um, and you're exposed to these toxic chemicals being burnt, you come back to your life and, you know, years later, you develop a disease that's consistent with people who are exposed to toxic chemicals. Come on, come on, we can do better. Opponents say the legislation would grant health and disability benefits to too many veterans who whose conditions may not have anything to do with their military service. They expressed worry that the influx of the cases would tax an already stressed VA system, which should not be stressed, leading to longer wait times for healthcare and processing disability claims. Then enhance the VA system, expand the VA system. I, these people are the first people go, yes, we're going to spend, I mean, like the United States is developing weapons programs where one jet costs 200, one jet costs $200 million per copy. And that doesn't include the tens of billions of dollars that goes that went into the, the R&D of the project. And you're telling me that, how, what was that number per year? Was it three billion or four billion? Yes. That is the least you can do for the people that you put in those jets, the people you put in those tanks, the people you put behind those rifles to kill America's enemies. He, as we, this bill did end up passing. But it shouldn't be at the cost of Jon Stewart screaming and cursing in Washington. I found it as one of the saddest moments that I probably say to you every week now. And what that, fun, right after Jon Stewart did that, when, right after Jon Stewart essentially embarrassed them on the world stage, within a week, within 10 days, that bill was passed. I, I really don't know what to say. Well, we can say thank you, Jon Stewart, for uh, doing what you s seem to love doing. and putting your, your mouth where your heart is and advocating for the least of us. Um, but John Stewart's not elected to office and we should have people that are focused on these crises rather than the nonsense we're getting hooked up in. Yeah, unfortunately, the people that are in that position are elected officials and when they're not actually on the floor in Congress, they have to spend their time uh, hustling for money to run for re-election. That's the system. That's our system, unfortunately. On but, a brighter note, yes. two things about Jon Stewart. We're going to, well, before we do that, we do have to talk about our sponsor this week. Yes, ma'am. In the depth of summer, I always like a cool drink, whether it be iced tea with lemon, I like a Cosmo, a Long Island iced tea. For all of our listeners who are outside the tri-state area, really, please stop by our sponsor, the Springfield Ale House Delco, for the best drinks and appetizers in infamous Delaware County. The best I've been told and I've experienced to try is their cheesesteak egg rolls, and all of the drinks at the bar are the best. Please stop and support our advertisers. Two things about Jon Stewart also is in 2013, Jon Stewart and his wife bought a 12 acre farm in Middletown, New Jersey called Bufflehead Farm. And it operates as a sanctuary for abused animals. I just think that just shows his level of caring and empathy 
for anyone that's an underdog in the world. I think that's absolutely perfect. I think, you know, you are willing to care for the least of us in, in this instance, you know, abused animals. And I don't think that someone like in that position, like John Stewart with the resources and the voice, who's caring for wounded animals, essentially, and after his work and advocacy under the 9-11, the uh, uh, during his 9-11 uh, advocacy efforts, and to see that the same thing is happening again, I don't think he could not show up on behalf of the people who were exposed to toxic hazards from burn pits. Four years later, after they opened the Buffalhead Farm, they received approval to open a 45-acre animal sanctuary in Colts Neck, New Jersey, to home animals safe from slaughterhouses and live markets. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. I think it is. I, I think it, it reveals, and I think you alluded to that, is this is someone who cares deeply about the least of us. And sometimes, you know, that heart extends not only to, you know, the human animal, but, you know, our four-legged friends. And in April of 2022, the Kennedy Center Mark Twain Prize for American Humor recognized John Stewart as an individual who has had an impact on American society in ways similar to the distinguished 19th century novelist and essayist Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain. The prize was awarded at the Galler performance featuring some of the biggest names in comedy at the Kennedy Center on April 24th, 2022. And the show premiered on PBS stations nationwide on June 21st, 2022. And good for John Stewart. That's a big award. Yeah, that's when you know that you're you're not just some guy telling jokes. That your life has done more. And, and even if John Stewart had not, I think, participated in his advocacy efforts, I think what he did on The Daily Show, The Daily Show just went was some a silly thing on Comedy Central. And I think for people of my generation, The Daily Show was a way of consuming the news with a wink and a nod. You know, he was like, hey, you know, these guys are lying to you, right? But we're going to tell you what they said anyway. And I think that approach, um, that perspective, that engagement was was really important to a lot of us. And I think, you know, to have him leave when he left, it felt a bit premature. But you know what? If Jon Stewart had to give up The Daily Show in order to do this work and participate in this kind of advocacy, I, I think it was... Um, it was time well spent. It was an easy decision in some in some ways. And he is back on TV now. He has a new Apple TV show called The Problem with Jon Stewart. I'm going to have to check it out because my interest in him has been reinvigorated with this current situation with the burn pits and his work for that. Yeah. You know, it's it's going to be tough. It's, it's, it's easy when it's a scripted show with brilliant writers telling, you know, amazing jokes and you have that kind of expectation night in, night out. But when it's just him and he doesn't have a team of writers that are writing perfect jokes for him and with perfect setups and punchlines and he's just essentially being himself, he's a mortal person. Some of the, the refinements of The Daily Show, it's just not there. And having him be his authentic self, I think we have to learn this is what it's like. That, you know, even the funniest people in the world, even the most insightful people in the world have their limitations. And when you're used to uh, consuming Jon Stewart 
from that comedic background and having to take him more seriously now because he's talking about these really sober issues that don't really lend themselves to humor. It's an adjustment. And Jon Stewart was 36 or 7 when The Daily Show started. He's now approaching 60 and he can't be the same man. And he shouldn't. And he shouldn't be. Yeah, a 36-year-old. The world doesn't need a 36-year-old John Stewart. The world needs a 60-year-old John Stewart with the 20-odd years of experience that he's had with his life. Um, and I often, I 100% agree, and I often think about an interview I heard with Sting years ago, and someone asked him, can't you write another song like Roxanne? And he said, no. He goes, I'm a married man with six children. He said, we yeah. all have to grow up. That's, and I think in some ways, uh, many of us, you know, from the Daily Show years, I, we're going to struggle a little bit. I'm I'm willing to embrace John Stewart for the uh, scruffy old man that he looks like now. The, the, the guy that uh, <laughs> Paulson tried to mock. He's uh, mature. He's yes. not a scruffy old man. Take it back. Oh, I, actually, I mean that in the most endearing way possible, in the most uh, kind and loving way possible. That was Those were the words used by Tucker Carlson to mock his advocacy for the people who were exposed to those toxic chemicals in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, those people were being blocked by obstinate Republicans in Congress. And John Stewart, uh, excuse me, Tucker Carlson was doing what Tucker Carlson does. And he chose to mock, you know, it's one of those things when somebody tries to bring you down and you embrace the worst that they have to offer, you lean into it and you rise above it. That's what John Stewart seems like to me now. John Stewart was willing to take the worst of his detractors, lean into it and say, okay, give me more. I think what John Stewart does in the next five to 10 years is going to be something I want to watch. I think so too. I, you know, in some ways, like I wonder if he's going to run for elective office. In some ways, I don't want him to because once you get in the system, you become part of the system and you get handcuffed by the system. I think as a, you know, almost like a, a free agent or like a utility player in a baseball he, he, I think he needs to be free to be himself. And I think once he goes into office, and as I said, you know, th- what politicians do when they're not actually voting on pieces of legislation is they hustle. They go and slap backs and, you know, grease palms, begging people for money to run for office. And I don't want to see John Stewart become that guy. No, I, and I think the generation of when Arnold Schwarzenegger even ran for governor, it was a much more civilized world. I would not want to see John Stewart involved in anything that remotely is our government any longer because it's actually collapsing in front of our eyes. Yeah. I think John Stewart needs to be the mirror. You know, I think it's Shakespeare, the the jester, the joker is the one is the only person who can actually speak the truth to the king without fear of getting killed. And we need John Stewart's voice, his humor to speak truth to power. And you can only do that when you're on the inside, when you're on the outside, excuse me. And once you get on the inside and you get trapped, uh, you lose that ability because, because then you become part of the system. So in some ways, I'd like to see him doing exactly what he's doing, living his best life, taking care of those poor, unfortunate animals, and, you know, taking care of the other set of poor, unfortunate animals known as human beings, when our politicians fail to do the most basic and uh, sort of human-worthy thing. I think the best is yet to come with Jon Stewart. I'm curious what he does in the next few years. And the next project that he takes on, I know that he'll be a success because I believe in small ways he is starting to change the world. I agree. I agree with you 100%. Thank you for joining us on The White Bikini. Please remember to subscribe to The White Bikini 
in all of your favorite podcast services and follow us on Instagram at The White Bikini. Thank you. Like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely Hey, that's me and I want you only Don't turn me home again, I just can't face myself alone again Don't run back inside, darling